Hey everyone, my name is Jonathan Brooke and this is Eyes Only. Leonard Lashak cannot see anything. If he could, all he would be able to see is an endless wall of white. He is flying over the Arctic Circle. A storm is raging and the conditions have deteriorated horribly. Yet Lashak cannot see any of it. His mask has been pulled over his eyes. Attached to the skyhook and trailing behind a B-17 at 140 miles an hour, he is flying through the sky. He is finally getting evacuated from the North Pole 8 Soviet drift station. It is not going according to plan. Something has gone wrong. He is facing the wrong direction. He has been turned around and is facing into the wind. This is a problem. Throwing his arms left and right frantically, Lashak tries to flip himself around. The force of the wind is making it nearly impossible for him to breathe. The panic that sets in is only compounding his lack of oxygen. Aboard the back of the plane, the crew work to reel Lashak in, unaware of his dire situation. James Smith, still on the ice below, watches the plane get smaller in the distance as it flies away. He doesn't know what's going on. Lashak fights for air and cannot seem to get any. There's no going back now. It takes six minutes for the skyhook to bring him to the back of the plane. If he cannot flip around, he feels as though he's going to suffocate and they will be reeling in a corpse. In the air over Quantico, Virginia, a strange scene is playing itself out. A pig is flying through the air at 125 miles per hour. It is trailing behind a Lockheed P2V-5 bomber. Connected to the plane by a nylon wire, the pig has begun spinning as it flies behind the craft. The crew of the plane tried to pull the animal aboard in mid-flight, something that is proving difficult. Connected to the pig is a G-force monitor. Upon being pulled aboard, the pig promptly attacks one of the crew members. Its flight has proven something important. The G-Force monitor proves what everyone had hoped. The device that had pulled the pig aboard, the Fulton Surface-to-Air Recovery System, better known as the Skyhook, was safely able to hook a man on the ground from the back of a plane without killing him. The Skyhook comes in a package that can be dropped from an airplane. That package contains the necessary ground equipment for a pickup. There is a harness attached to a high-strength nylon line. A small helium bottle inflates a balloon, raising the line to its full height of 500 feet. The pickup aircraft is fitted with two horns protruding from its nose. It flies into the line, and a trigger at the base of the horns simultaneously releases the balloon and secures the line to the aircraft. The simple geometry of the pickup means that although the plane is traveling at high speeds, the person is lifted vertically off the ground. They gradually accelerate through the air as the line is pulled more horizontally until they reach the same speed as the airplane. The line trails along the base of the airplane and is caught through a hatch at the rear. It is fastened to a winch allowing the person to be reeled on board. Because the initial lift is vertical, Pickups can be made inside forests and even out at sea, or in the case of Project Cold Feet, 
over the Arctic Circle. James Smith sits perched looking out of the B-17 transport plane that he is about to jump out of. They are approaching the location of North Pole 8, the Soviet drift station they are there to explore. Below him lies an endless expanse of white. It is almost 6 p.m. It has been years since he escaped Alpha Station. In stark contrast to the last time he was this far north, it is now the polar day. The sun shines bright 24-7. They are roughly 400 miles from the North Pole and in the middle of nowhere. At the controls of the plane, pilots with the Intermountain Air Division work to locate MP-8. The site they are looking for is not on a map. Its existence is clandestine. Thanks to the hard work of the Air Force, the location had been found, and this is the moment everything is hinging on. They are looking for a tiny speck of black in a sea of white. A tiny speck of black that they eventually find. As they make a pass overhead, Smith can see why the Soviets had left so hastily. Giant cracks are clearly visible in the ice. Eerily similar to Alpha Station, the airstrip has been cut in half by the breaking ice. They make a low pass so the crew can drop a smoke grenade to mark the landing zone. It lands deep in the snow. They watch, waiting for the smoke cloud, yet nothing happens. It has failed to ignite. They throw another one over the same spot. It malfunctions as well. Smith knows what this means. This is part of the reason why he is here. He is going to have to jump and mark the area himself. Lashak is as new to this as they had come. He had learned a parachute for this mission alone. At 5.50 p.m., Smith jumps out of the aircraft and into the blistering negative 50 degree air. The feeling would suck the air right out of you. Almost immediately, Smith realizes he's in danger. The trajectory had been wrong. He is heading straight for the station's metal radio antenna. Thoughts of being impaled fly through his mind. The intense wind is controlling his descent. Pulling forward on the toggles of his parachute, he makes an attempt to increase his speed. If he can gain enough speed, he will be able to nearly miss it. He misses the antenna by a few feet. Touching down, he immediately lights a smoke signal, this time making sure it works. He radios for the next pass to come in 50 yards to the right. By his judgment, that should give Lashak enough drift leeway to miss the antenna. Lashak positioned himself over the Joe hole, the hole in the belly of the B-17 that would typically hold a gun turret. The gun had been removed, and the hole is where he had just watched Smith drop out of. The countdown for his jump has just begun. Feelings of apprehension creep over him. Just before he jumps, a member of the flight crew yells over the roaring engines. He tells him good luck, and that he envies him. At 5.57 p.m., he drops out of the hole and into the sky. That feeling of apprehension turns into a euphoric feeling as his chute opens and he floats to Earth. This would be his last jump. He had learned to use a parachute for this mission and he would never do it again. It is a good one to go out on. It was a near-perfect drop. Between 6.02 and 6.22, all the cargo they would need is dropped to them, including the Skyhook. At 6.45, 
The B-17 turns and heads home. Both men watch it disappear over the southern horizon. They experience a sudden sense of isolation. Exhaustion sweeps over them. It is all real now. It was just them. Their only way out of there now lay on the ice next to them. They have found themselves in an eerie place. Everything from the men who had worked there is still there. Their personal belongings, even photos of their families. In the tiny mess hall, food is still sitting out. It is an arctic ghost town. All of it a great reminder of the fact that this place is doomed for destruction. They begin a hut-by-hut search, trying to find a hut with beds in it. Smith thought about just sleeping in one of the beds instead of unpacking all his gear. Upon inspection, he quickly changed his mind. The bed smells terrible. He is reminded about how difficult it is to wash linen in the Arctic Circle. They unpack their own gear and try to get as comfortable as possible. It'll be three days before they will get extracted. Smith lights a small sterno stove and cooks dinner, a few cans of stew. Lashak begins taking things out of his bag. Smith watches him pull out a camera, a 45 Magnum revolver, and then finally the thing he was after, a bottle of Canadian club whiskey. Unnecessary weight for his pack, so he had to stash it in his medical supplies. After dinner, they pour themselves a traditional Arctic drink, whiskey and snow, and then they go to bed. The next day, they begin examining the ice station. They note that the structures were crude and poorly built. Smith believed Alpha had been a much higher standard of living. That being said, the technology and scientific equipment that the Russians were working with was more advanced and of a higher quality than the current U.S. versions. Over the next few days, both men extensively collected data and selected items that they would take with them. They could take 150 pounds on the skyhook in one bag. The danger and effort was paying off, though. They had landed on a treasure trove of valuable information. They collected 83 documents, 21 pieces of equipment, and took over 300 photographs. It was Lashak's job to determine how advanced of an oceanographic program the Soviets were conducting. He took photographs showing generators that were cushioned on rubber tires a typical tactic used to muffle noise when acoustical surveillance work is being done. The CIA had taken over funding of their mission before they departed. This kind of information would prove beneficial for not just that agency, but a host of intelligence agencies. Life on a Soviet drift station was no longer a mystery. Now, they just needed to get back home, or it would all be for nothing. On June 1st, after being on the drift station for two nights, they send a radio signal. There's no response. What the two men don't know is that their crew has already tried to find them. The Air Force and the Navy have lost the location of North Pole 8. They didn't know where Smith and Lashak were. They are called Arctic Drift Stations for a reason. They drift, and that is exactly what happened. A storm had accelerated the ice movement. They were out of radio range now. Their extraction team couldn't find their location. A storm had moved in between them, blocking visibility from the air. 
They were searching without any success. It didn't take long for Smith and Lashak to realize something was wrong. Adrift on the ice, Lashak and Smith huddled around a small coal stove and tried to make the most of their rations. They had enough, and if need be, they could begin to eat the food left by the Russians. That didn't seem very appealing, though. The food was not in good condition. In an adjacent shed, they had discovered dog carcasses. Whether they had died of natural causes or they were intended to be eaten was unclear. Both men wondered how desperate things had gotten on the ice station before the crew had been evacuated. It had been a day since they were supposed to be extracted, and they still had not heard anything. Back at their forward operating base, the commander overseeing the operation was worried. Not necessarily for the men he had on the ice. He had faith that Smith could keep them alive for quite a while. Lashak had experience in Antarctica as well. They were well suited for this terrain. The reality, though, is every day that passed, his superiors back in the U.S. would begin to question the operation. It was way over budget. The only thing that had made it happen had been the CIA's interest in the device they were testing. The CIA had stepped in with funding for the operation. The admirals that he reported to had strongly advised against Project Coldfeet, and now he had just lost his guys in the field. His pilots were flying back-to-back round the clock to find them. That effort would pay off, because on June 2nd, while Lashak was moving a piece of equipment between two of the sheds, he heard the welcome sound of an aircraft in the distance. Searching the horizon, he caught sight of a PV-2 plane. It was one of the smaller planes that had been searching for them. Yet he noticed something worrisome about how it was flying. It was moving so slow, it looked like it was about to fall out of the sky. Making radio contact, he spoke with the pilot. The pilot had reduced his speed to the very minimum to be allowed to continue the search. He had flown over 28 hours in the past two days, all in a desperate attempt to locate them. An attempt that had paid off, and he assured the two men that the B-17 would be along in a few hours to pick them up. They began inflating the balloons and tying them to a tractor that was sitting outside. The conditions were horrible. A snowstorm had moved in, and it was turning into whiteout conditions. When the plane arrived, the wind had picked up, The skyhook is not tested for these conditions. The 150-pound cargo bag is going to go first. They send its balloon up. As it goes, both men struggle to hold it in place. The wind is registering 15 knots, and the balloon is being pulled away from them. They feel a jerk, and the bag flies off. The plane had connected, and their cargo had made it. Now it's their turn. Lashak clips the skyhook line into the back of his harness. Throwing Smith a salute, he lets go of the balloon. As it rises, he walks a few feet forward and sits down, facing away from the direction he's about to be pulled. That anticipation creeps in again, that kind that begins to drive you mad. It does not last long, though. It's soon overtaken by confusion. Confusion that turns to fear, as Lashak begins to feel a weightlessness, a sensation he should not be feeling. The plane has not connected yet. 500 feet up, the balloon is being pulled. 
The intense wind is pushing the balloon, taking Lashak with it. Smith watches in horror as Lashak is drugged backwards, bouncing on the ice, clawing desperately at the ground to grab hold of anything. The line is pulling him directly towards a giant pressure ridge in the ice. Smith can see what is happening, and he is helpless to stop it. He is heading straight for a wall of sharp, jagged ice protruding up from the pressure ridge. In his frantic efforts to grab at anything as he bounces on the ice, Lashak's mask becomes tangled. It gets pushed over his eyes, rendering him blind. He can no longer see the ground he is clawing at and trying to hold on to. Just yards away from the pressure ridge, a safety mechanism activates on the skyhook. The timing is pure luck. Lashak drops onto the ground as 140 more feet of line release. He understands the system that has just happened. He has about 10 seconds before he is going to be yanked backwards again. Once the balloon reaches its new elevation, he would be pulled again. Using all his strength he has, he digs deep into ice, pounding small holes and driving his hands into them. Tensely, he waits to fight with all his strength against the line's force. A few seconds later, he feels a swift yank as the plane connects with the balloon and he is sent airborne. Flying through the air, another problem becomes shockingly apparent. The line has become tangled due to what he has just gone through. The connection has wrapped around the front of his harness instead of the back. As he flies through the sky, he is forced around facing into the wind. As he trails behind the plane, it gains altitude, and the force of the wind directly into his face continues to increase. Lashak is throwing his arms left and right, trying to turn backwards. Gasping for air, he is beyond the point of panic. He needs to gain enough momentum to flip around. He had been trained on how to do this. Following his training, he pitches left and right. Finally, one of the maneuvers sticks, and he spins around. He can breathe yet again, but he has to hold his arms fully extended to keep the force from turning him back around. He is losing strength as the minutes tick by. Slowly, the crew aboard the plane winch him in. Hundreds of feet up and miles from where he had started, he is pulled aboard. Collapsing on the floor, a smile comes over his face. Smith watches as the plane disappears from view. For the first time, he is the only one there. He knows they're coming back for him. There is no other plane within thousands of miles that could do what he needs this one to do. Unhooking his balloon from the tractor, he takes a breath and lets it go. As the balloon reaches its elevation, Smith is pulled by the wind. Clinging to the tractor, he holds himself in place. The force becomes too great though, and he is dragged across the ice. The hood of his suit pulls over his eyes, and he can no longer see. In the air, the pilots come around to line up. The weather has gotten so bad, the pilots come in tight and fast, trying to catch the balloon. They have been dealing with vertigo sickness. They are flying by sight during a storm, and the maneuvers are taking a toll on them. Smith is dragged 70 feet before his boot catches an irregularity on the ice. He fights to hold on to it. 
The plane connects with the balloon, yet it is off-center. The line just hangs there. No one in the aircraft can tell if it's even going to engage. Finally, it slowly slides down the horns of the skyhook and catches. Smith flies into the sky. He cannot see anything, yet he can tell he is facing backwards. He can breathe and he feels the force of the wind on his back. Reaching down, he pulls his UHF radio close to his face. On board, Lashak and the crew hear Smith's voice come through the line. He is singing into the radio. At 8.18 p.m., he was pulled aboard. Years later, he would claim it was the best ride of his life. They turn and head home. One of the crew members appears with a bottle of VAT-69 scotch, and they toast to the mission. As problematic as it was, the first use of the skyhook in the field was a success. Flying over the Bahamas, Robert Zimmerman pilots the B-17 with ease. A pilot with Intermountain Aviation, Zimmerman knew how to handle the skyhook well. Lining up the balloon between its horns, he connects. The cameras roll as a stage dummy is pulled off a life raft and into the air behind the plane. Intermountain Aviation had been hired by James Bond series producers. The actual plane that had picked Smith and Lashak up was now flying over the set of James Bond Thunderball. Intermountain Aviation had a well-kept secret. That B-17 belong to the CIA. Robert Zimmerman is a CIA pilot. Intermountain Aviation is a CIA front. It is one of the many private aviation companies secretly owned by the agency. Its pilots highly skilled and used to operating all over the world, the nature of which much is still classified. The film Thunderball may have been the first cinematic appearance of the Skyhook. It would certainly not be the last. Yet, it is the only one to actually use the real device and airplane from Project Coldfeet. The Skyhook would be featured in more movies, including the 2008 Batman film The Dark Knight. It is featured in multiple video games as well. As for real-world operations, after Thunderball, its use becomes less visible. It would enter the inventory of special operations. There's strong reason to believe it was used in clandestine operations. The details of those missions, though, are still classified. Much of this podcast comes from the direct account of the people that experienced Project Cold Feet. Later in life, Lashak would write a book titled Project Cold Feet, A Secret Mission to a Soviet Ice Station. He did a good job at telling his story now that it can finally be told. Thanks for listening.